You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. The podcast that knows we can't stop here. This is Bat Country. I'm Megan. I'm Malice Walker. You're <laughs> Sylvia Rath. I'm <laughs> I'm George Gorwell. Payne Air. <laughs> Emily I'm... Deckerson. I'm Lady Macdeath. Rapunzel. <laughs> Rudyard Crippling. Oh, that's a good one. I I, I joined Roller Derby, and so. We were looking at some of the best uh, literary derby names. I'm RJ. There's some pretty good ones out there. She's Megan. It's true. So, what do you think of when I say 1984? Not existing. It's true. Neither of us existed in 1984. Um, But you know what did exist? The Chicago Bears. Super Bowl Shuffle. The Ghostbusters. Terminator. Beverly Hills Cop. Miami Dolphins. Prince, Karate Kid, uh, Crack Cocaine, Ronald Reagan, Careless Whisper. Today on Ono Lit Class, we're going to get political. We're going to go there. And by there, I mean we're going to go to 1948 to a young man, middle-aged man, middle-aged man at Um, this point. 1948? Yeah. He was six months from death. Six months from death, man. (laughs) Named... Eric Blair, better known as George Orwell. Unfortunately, not George Gorwell, because he was not an awesome roller derby player. RJ? This is true. (laughs) Thank you for corroborating my story. Why don't you tell us the story of how a young lad named Eric Blair became an old man six months from death named George Orwell, who wrote 1984. Oh, Eric Arthur Blair. Born. June 25th, 1903, in India. Well, he died really young. Yeah. Okay. He was like 47, 46. I don't, I don't read the biographies before we do these. Uh, he lived until January 1950. He is better known by his pen name, George Orwell. He um, was born into a pretty well-to-do family. And this kind of makes him just a little bit boring to do the biography of, just because he was born... He existed. His dad was a surveyor in India. His grandfather was a politician back in England. He kind of moved between the colonies. They owned some land in Jamaica. Um, That's where the family got most of their money. And he became an author. Although his upper class upbringing uh, definitely comes through in some points in 1984. We're going to talk about that later. So hang on to that one. Well, so... Where his story really picks up and, frankly, becomes interesting is when he becomes a man in his 20s. Because George Orwell was an awkward man. Um, Oh. Reading most of the biographies about him, he just didn't get well with people, which is a little bit ironic because he always wrote and presented himself as a man of the common man. 
the a man of the common man. Yes. You mean like like One a man of the... of the people? Anyway, he was not very good with normal people. His brother-in-law would say that George meant well, and he would bring him to bars and stuff like that. And one bartender told the brother-in-law, this is a quote, don't bring that bugger in here again. I feel like that's kind of lost without doing it in a Cockney accent. Go for it. Don't you bring that bugger here again. Apparently he was a troll. He would just start picking political fights with people. And he was big, aloof. He tripped over tables, his feet, things. He apparently had a very unique way of speaking. Um, People have tried to diagnose him basically after his life saying the awkwardness, the limited interest, the monotone voice. He was probably suffering from Asperger's syndrome. He also got expelled, apparently, from some school at some point for, like, mailing his, like, headmaster a dead rat, so. And I think when he was a teacher, he got in trouble for, like, beating one of his students with, like, a chair. But then that student also afterwards was like, nah, I love him. He's a good dude. So who knows what was going on there. I did come across that story as well, that he had a trouble with controlling his emotions. His social decorum... Also was a bit weird that when he would deal with the common man, he would expect him to know how to use utensils correctly or to know how to use the little fork versus the big fork. And if they didn't do it correctly, he would make a big show about it. Um, His own appearance was apparently all over the place that he would not dress up to fancy parties. And he would go on the BBC, for example, and start slurping tea. Right out of a canteen. He was basically known as an English eccentric, as some people put it lightly. Well, see, that's how you know that he was uh, upper class. He wasn't crazy. He was eccentric. And I think this actually explains George Orwell and his early writings pretty well. Because he always kind of saw himself as someone on the inside. And because he was on the inside, he was able to make fun of institutions. And so he, as most of us know from having read 1984 in the past or Animal Farm, he wasn't all about Western government, that he wanted to take it down. But he had to deal with the fact he was a white man in upper class trying to take down the government that benefited him. And so he tried to see himself and play it off as, well, he could bring it down from the inside. He He was a woke, straight white man. That's how you would put it in 2017 (laughs) vernacular. We could see this also in his way that he approached approached religion. His family was really religious. And one of his biographers describes how George Orwell really hated religion. Eric Blair was pretty religious. And so the way he would sell himself outwardly through his writing was, religion's kind of stupid. Religion is silly. You know, we don't need decentralized institutions. We should get rid of them. But his own private life, he would actually go to church he would take part in masses, and even when he passed away, he left instructions for him to be have a funeral in a particularly religious way. So, so is George Orwell a pen name or like an alter ego character at this point? Well, formerly it's a pen name, but it might have been an alter ego. So some of his earliest writings um, began to crop up when he was in his 20s. He began writing for newspapers. He pointed out pointed pretty early on the 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 focus of his early writings 
was against at the time, there were free newspapers that started cropping up that were supported by, as he put it, right-wing politicians or right-wing weaning uh, benefactors. And he was really upset about free newspapers. He thought people should pay for newspapers. That's how you get good reporting, that there should be licensures on newspapers um, because reporting needed licensing in his mind. And he was scared of free literature being passed out with bad ideas because people would have access to it for free and read it and maybe believe it. I think he moved away from that later in his life because you know, this was him pretty early on. And to take that idea and to think that he stuck with it throughout his life it would seem to run against a lot of what he goes into in 1984, as we discuss, or in Animal Farm, where he probably doesn't want those walls being built up between the people and the literature they, they read. Um, but it does make me think about, you know, what do you think about 2017, where people write blogs all the time, you have basically unfettered access to a lot of free literature. And it's interesting because... Um, I mean, you know, everything going on with with the fake news and stuff, not to date the podcast. Um, but also this idea that in some cases, the the free unfettered access to news, you know, something like Twitter, is either going to be like total garbage or in the case of like countries where the actual media is, you know, very tightly controlled the only places where you're getting, like, factual, accurate uh, information, like, sent from, like, the people in the country. I don't really have a joke there. That was just an observation. Excuse me, Megan. <laughs> My camera's ready in the microwave. <laughs> the joke isn't going to be relevant <laughs> when this episode comes out, I, you know? I keep trying to stress to you Hi, Kelly to Ann. date this. <laughs> No, it's Obama. He's the one watching us through the microwave. Why is Kellyanne watching us through the microwave? Because <laughs> she thinks I'm hot. Oh, yeah. Now, one of the things I learned researching Orwell that was a bit of a surprise to me is really where he started to take off as a writer and where he seemed to really find his voice. You know, I assumed, as I think most people would assume, that Orwell and a lot of the writers at the time wrote in response to World War II. Kind of a big thing. You might have heard about it. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. Um, but really, apparently, Orwell, what he based a lot of his writing on and might have been the nexus for 1984 was the Spanish Revolution or Spanish Civil War that took place in the 30s because Orwell went to Spain during the war and he covered it from the inside. And he did a lot of writing while he was there talking about how the socialism that he saw there really struck a nerve in him and it changed his point of view and I think shaped a lot of the politics and how he just saw the world and then later on described it in the books. I'm going to read a quote from Orwell about the Spanish Civil War. Go ahead. Um, it was the first time that ever had been in a town where the working class was in the saddle. Practically every building of any size had been seized by the workers and was draped with red flags and with the red and black flag of anarchist. Every wall was scrawled with the hammer and sickle and with the initials of revolutionary parties. Almost every church had been gutted and images burnt. Churches here and there were being systematically demolished by gangs of workmen. No one said senor or don or even usted. Everyone called everyone else comrade or thou and said salute instead of buenos dias. Above all, there was a belief in the revolution and the future, a feeling of having suddenly emerged into an era of equality and freedom. 
Human beings were trying to behave as human beings and not as cogs in the capitalist machine. In other writings, Orwell specifically points out how he doesn't believe what he saw going on in Spain at the time could work in England or any of the capitalist Western nations um, that he thought perhaps those countries were too far gone. Just by way of background, the Spanish Civil War, it was between really anarchist slash socialist and the nationalist. Eventually, most of Spain was taken over by the nationalist right-wing party, and Franco was the leader there for about 30 years after it. Uh, Barcelona was the last stronghold to fall, having 8 million people you know, just living this, in Orwell's mind, a, a communist paradise or anarchist paradise. Um, you keep it up with these buzzwords, and this podcast is going to be on a government watch list. Megan. RJ. Go unplug the microwave. <laughs> Stop with this shit. Okay, so let's um, kind of briefly touch upon, because we'll probably talk more about it after we, we talk about the book. So, 1984, the the book um, has had a massive, massive uh, cultural impact since its publication. It introduced all kinds of terms that are used now, especially now with things like thought crime and thought police and all that fun stuff. Um, I mean, even the phrase Orwellian carries that sort of weight. When someone's talking about an Orwellian future or an Orwellian practice, they mean specifically the idea of surveillance, of being sort of constantly watched. I mean, even if you have never read the book, 1984, you have heard the phrase, Big Brother is watching you. I love that show. I watch it every <laughs> Sunday on CBS. Big Brother's still on TV? Yes. Huh. America is watching. I guess. CBS. CBS. <laughs> Did you know? No, no, the class is sponsored by CBS. <laughs> America's most watched network. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so no one can deny the uh, cultural impact of 1984. However, I did realize when uh, getting everything together for this episode and rereading and all that that I forgot about 90% of it. And that's because when I read it, as a high schooler, so I was, what, like, 16, 17, I hated it. I hated it the most. RJ, how did you feel when you first approached 1984? So this was a book I actually did read in high school. Shock. Few and far between. I remember liking the book. I remember, um, to age myself a bit. When I was in high school, this is when the Patriot Act passed in the U.S., which came with a whole bunch of questions. So for me particularly, it was relevant at the time that I was first introduced to it. I think... RJ's old. I think I always enjoyed, on a visceral level, Animal Farm more. Maybe because there's animals. <laughs> there's talking animals in this one. <laughs> um, as I've grown older... So old. So very, very old. I do think that Orwell did a good job of painting the world as he saw it. I don't think it's quite our world. And we're going to talk about maybe the world Orwell saw versus Huxley and where we are today. But I do think it's a powerful piece of literature. I do think it is a bit dated. I do think it's a product of its time just a little bit with World War II and also the Spanish Civil War. Having learned about that now. Okay, see, I hate it for entirely different reasons <laughs> that have nothing to do with it. 
uh, being dated per se. But so we kind of did the the end of the podcast at the beginning here about uh, how we feel about things. So let's let's kind of jump right into actually talking about the plot of 1984. Tell me about 1984. My brother is calling me. Hang on. Yeah, you're. You're you're, call, you're calling in the middle of the podcast again. Best day? <laughs> yes. Is this you? Yes, again. Uh, <laughs> With us is Best Day. Best Day, what are your thoughts on 1984? It's a good book. It's my favorite book. You know George Orwell actually was planning on writing a sequel before he died. It was going to be called 1980 More. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's good enough. <laughs> you did it. All right, I'll, I'll call you back later, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't need to interrupt. Bye. Bye. All right, that pun's so good, it has to stay in. We first meet our protagonist, Winston Smith, average Joe, and sad sack living in Oceania, which is London, but sort of smashed together with a bunch of other countries because that's just how things go down in the dark dystopian future. He eats sad future food, which is, like, synthetic and whatever, and... Why is food in the future always, like, gross, like, gloppy, soylent green shit, do you think? Like, there's never good future food. We ate all the good stuff. See, it started with the buffalo, then the dodo, could eat all the cows. And the did fe- we eat the dodo, or did we just, like, hunt the shit out of it? What'll column A, what'll column B? Alright, well, moving on. Surrounded by posters reminding him that Big Brother is watching you. Two-way screens are present in every room ever all the time, so that propaganda can always be flashing and that everyone can be monitored by the party, which is, like, the ruling government thing. Which means that Big Brother is always watching you and watches you poop. Because Big Brother has needs. Dark, terrible needs. The rules of the party are enforced by the police patrol and the thought police, and if you think there's a lot of needlessly capitalized groups of things, hang on to your government-issued thought crime-proof hats because we're only just getting started. So Winston's job is editor of records at the Ministry of Truth, or Mini-True, which sounds much cuter than it actually is. There, he rewrites history and erases people from photos to conform to the Ministry's version of the past. Which is kind of interesting, because Orwell sort of predicted, like, Photoshop. But, you know, not the idea of screen caps. So at this point, we pause, and we learn the four governing branches of the party. The Ministry of Truth, which I just mentioned, which we learn is all about lies. The Ministry of Peace, which wages war. The Ministry of Love, which does all the torture. And the Ministry of Plenty, which initiates planned rationing and economic disaster. So... You know, presumably there's also a ministry of sick parties whose job it is to make you sit in a corner and learn advanced calculus. That's a good time. Yeah, if you're a nerd. So anyway, the party lets people smoke their shitty future cigarettes and drink their shitty future gin, but nothing else is allowed. Except maybe jerking off. I mean, like, Big Brother's gotta have something to watch or he's just gonna get bored. Uh, So Winston realizes that there's a tiny little corner of his apartment that Big Brother can't see. And so he goes there, and do you know what he does in that tiny corner of his apartment? Poops. That's what I would do. I don't want to be watched while I poop. No, he does not poop. What he does is he commits a crime so terrible, so absolutely horrid, that the punishment is death. He decides to keep a diary. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) 
in the diary, um, he writes down really boring shit, actually. Like, Dear diary. <laughs> Dear diary, my name is Winston Smith, and the government is very mean. Uh, he writes about how he wants to have, like, weird hate sex with this pretty girl he sees at work, and also possibly regular sex with a guy named O'Brien, who's a member of the super special inner party, and who brushed gently against Winston's shoulder at work. So, basically, it's like live journal. And you know what? I'm, I'm with Big Brother on this one. Shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed. Burn the diary. Burn it to the ground. <laughs> Winston's gross middle school diary makes him feel like a super badass, because no one is allowed to do anything that makes them happy that doesn't have to do with the party. No one can feel happiness or love or hot, sexy feelings unless they are directed towards the party. Also, no possessions either. That couch... Is the party's. Your collection of vintage lava lamps? Nope. Those aren't yours. They're the party's. Your Star Trek Walking Dead crossover fan fiction? No. The party's cool with you keeping that. It, it doesn't want it. We also learn about the greatest enemy of the state, Emmanuel Goldstein, leader of the resistance group, the Brotherhood. Always um, the Jews. Always, yeah. No, in fact, they even make a point of saying that the party flashes his quote-unquote lean Jewish face. On, on the giant telescreens, and it's like, mm, that makes me uncomfortable. Could have been worse. Yeah. Could have flashed his circumcised schmeckle. Gotta always with the dicks. Gotta be a, a, we have, it's like we have a dick quota. Um, but what's great is, so they flash his, his face, his unfortunately described face, on the giant telescreens everywhere, every day for the scheduled two minutes of hate, which is hilarious like that's so good i just picture like they're like hate this man hate the bad man hate him Boop. we now return to your regularly scheduled dystopic future viewing i'm having flashbacks to msnbc every day <laughs> so winston goes about his days trying to remember his mother who disappeared some time ago dealing with a super uncomfortable ulcer on his ankle, which is supposed to symbolize repression and also possibly horniness. And he realizes he can't remember when the party exactly came to power, but he's sure they haven't always been around, but also he can't prove it because of all the history editing. And so he ponders that with all the party's historical fuckery, everything could be fake. And if everything's fake, and there's no trace of past truth, then what's stopping the fake thing from becoming the truth? But that's a lot of heady questions that will have to wait till later, because at lunch, Winston sees that pretty woman who he has weird, hate, love, awkward teenager feelings about. And so his ankle ulcer starts to throb? Yes. Look, when young men get of a certain age and they see a pretty girl, sometimes their ankle ulcers will just do things. Um, so they share a meaningful glance and Winston is worried that she's a member of the Thought Police and just knows about his nerd diary. Speaking of the nerd diary, all he writes about in that thing is boning. Like, literally, just boning his now-vanished wife about how one time he boned a prostitute and how much it sucks that the party is super not about boning unless it's for making babies. So, 1984... The horrors of a surveillance-based, all-knowing, all-seeing, dystopic future that is mainly about one dude's desperate, desperate desire to do a sex. He should have taken his ass to Handmaid's Tale. 
You're in the wrong dystopic future, Winston. He needs to go be a commander. Uh, that'll be another book for another day. Winston takes a break from thinking about sex and instead thinks about the proles, a group of people who make up like 85% of the population and are apparently too dumb to brainwash, and so they will never rise up and revolt, which super sounds like something that would have been written by an upper-class British dude just saying. I call it the Guinness class. They drink it for the taste. Prime goofs. Prime goofs this episode. So Winston uh, also- Oi! Oi. Oi! I'm the proles. Oi! Winston also thinks some more about the whole if the past is erased and no one remembers it, then whatever lie replaces it is effectively the truth thing. But then he gets distracted by sex thoughts again, and he thinks he should give his diary to that hunk O'Brien. Because reasons. Winston then wanders around Prole Town, being all like, Man, these proles are so lucky to be ignorant and not burdened with terrible, terrible intellectualism and Jesus Orwell, can can you not? Like, this this definitely kind of fits in with what you were talking about earlier, where it's like, I am a man of the common people, except why are you using the wrong fork at the dinner table, you heathen? So you're saying Winston is George? Uh, I mean, I'm not making that claim. I'm saying that clearly his, uh... What's Je ne sais quoi. <laughs> Clearly his, his own sort of... His modus um, operandi. Please stop. His views and preferences are being uh, filtered in here through old Winston. Anyway, at the end of his walk, he sees that pretty woman again and thinks that maybe she's spying on him and following him and thinks about killing her with a paperweight. Like you do. Hey, I just met you. It might sound crazy, but I want to beat you to death with a paperweight. You didn't even get the lyric right. <laughs> I, I just met you, <laughs> hey. and, and this is crazy. Hey, well, right. that, it might seem, <laughs> I'm just going to keep fucking it I, up. Hey, I just met you. Like, like, you might want to sing it to me, but otherwise it just sounds like you have brain problems. Hey, I just met you, and this sounds crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to beat you with this paperweight. <laughs> maybe oh gosh you want to have hate sex hey i just met you let's have hate sex a few days later the pretty work lady secretly passes a note to winston that says do you like me xxo no even even like more forward and weird than that wanna fuck okay dial it back slightly let us have a physical relationship right it, now it says i love you which, like, what? Like, what? What are we missing here? You've never done that? They, they've never spoken. They never, like, she, they've never had words. She, I love you. I've done that. Yeah? Three times a week, at least. Hasn't worked that well. Can't imagine why. So, Winston, who has been suspicious of this woman for, like, a while now, thinking that she's gonna thought crime him. Why are you leaning in close to the mic? I love all. Um. <laughs> Winston forgets all about that now that the opportunity to enter the bone zone has been presented to him. So they have a little secret love affair. They hold hands, they eat some, like, secret illegal chocolate. At some point, she bothers to tell him that her name's Julia, and eventually they meet up in some bushes where Big Brother apparently isn't watching, and they finally do a sex. Big Brother was watching. Big Brother was loving it. It's great, and they love it, and maybe Winston will finally, like, chill the hell out with the horniness. 
you don't understand men if you think one sex will get him to stop thinking about sex. Fair enough. Well, that might be bad news for Winston because they keep seeing each other, and instead of continuing to do hot, hot sex, they have depressing conversations about feelings of repressed sexuality and directionless anger, and Winston talks about a time he was walking with his wife and almost pushed her off a cliff, but didn't because there's no way to triumph over the oppression of the party, and Julia is reasonably weirded out by this. But eventually, as they continue to see each other, they go back to doing a sex and also having deep conversations. At one point, when the book has to meet its requisite ominous foreshadowing quota, Winston sees a rat and goes, Ew, I hate rats. Rats are like my greatest fear. If someone threatened me with a rat, I would literally sell out the person I care about the most. And Julia's like, that's oddly specific, but okay. Thematically significant omens. Is, is possibly the only running joke we have that has happened more times than The Simpsons. Meanwhile, everyone's getting ready for Hate Week. You know what Hate Week is, RJ? MSNBC. You already made that joke. Try again. Like Shark Week? Kind of. Except instead of... No, actually no. It's not like Shark <laughs> Week at all. It's kind of more like Spirit Week, like at school. But instead of things like Pajama Day, they have military parades and, you know, like human rights atrocities. Winston takes time to reflect that all the sex he's been having has fixed his ulcer, taken away his need for alcohol, and just generally been awesome. Except... Except... Except that he wants to do more. He wants to resist, and revolt, and reuse, and recycle, and Julia doesn't. So she's not green? No. She's cool with the small, personal rebellion of having lots and lots of sex. And what timing... Winston's man crush Monday, O'Brien, suddenly hints that he might be a member of the Subversive Brotherhood, and he invites Winston to his house. So he passed up having more sex with Julia? Yeah. Tell me. So Winston is basically swooning over O'Brien, and also the idea of working to topple the party, but mostly O'Brien. Should it be pointed out now that George Orwell was homophobic, and so... In no small part, gay love is the downfall of Winston. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I think that uh, we could read into that because Orwell was homophobic as hell. There's really nowhere else to go with that. He liked using words like pansy and Nancy. As like insults to people. George Orwell was kind of a dick. You would say that, wouldn't you? You pansy liberal. <laughs> you Nancy poet. <laughs> <laughs> Both of which are George Orwell quotes about other people. Oh, man. You Nancy poet. Gonna mail you a dead rat. Rats, too. There's just he, He's very hard time separating the, the personal from the uh, narrative here. So Winston actually lets Julia in on this, and they decide together to take the plunge and go to O'Brien's. And so it's super swanky. Threesome. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Now, who goes in the middle? Uh, Winston, obviously. Like, let's be real. Hot. So O'Brien's house is super swanky because he's in the inner party and basically has all the sweet privileges that are supposedly a no-no, like being able to turn our pal Big Brother off so he can poop in peace. Um, so they talk about the Brotherhood, and Winston and Julia pledge their commitment to it. They talk about Emmanuel Goldstein, and they get, like, super hammered, and then they call it a night. 
you know, this guy really sounds like the type that would really want to topple Big Brother. Oh, yeah. Got all these sweet perks, gets to do what he wants, can just summon people for a possible threesome. I'm sure this won't come back to bite them in the ass, though. In 2017 terms, this is why all my woke brothers and sisters out there, they gotta watch out for those turnt white people. I think that just took two years off my life. All right, so... Oh. You might think Whitey's woke as fuck. Whitey. Whitey ain't keeping it 100. He ain't keeping 100. He's trying to bring you down. Please stop. So O'Brien gives Winston Goldstein's manifesto. The theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism. Holy shit. I lost track of that before I was even halfway through the sentence. Like, no wonder... I couldn't deal with this book when I was in high school because you know what the next few, like, bits of this book are? About how the Maccabees took one day's worth of oil and made it last for eight nights. (laughs) No. No. It's about how Goldsmith... Goldstein. Goldstein was walking by a burning bush that started to speak to him. No. Are you... Oh, God, get another one. It's about a simple golfer who had played hockey, but learned to hit a golf ball like 500 yards. Wait, wait, are you doing Happy Gilmore? (laughs) Yes. No, no, it's about like philosophy and stuff, and it's really boring, and this was the part in high school where I skipped ahead and just started looking at the spark notes, and as an adult, guess what? It's still really boring. You're wrong. No, like, my brother loves this book. And he, this is because he loves reading philosophy. He owns books about philosophy that he reads for fun. <sighs> Basically, the gist of it. The party is bad. Everything you know is a lie. Newspeak, doublethink, blah, blah, blah. Let's get back to the good stuff. So it turns out that <gasps> O'Brien is actually a member of the Thought Police. Who would have guessed? I don't know. Winston, not Winston and Julia, they are dragged away to the Ministry of Love, which sounds like an 80s British New Wave band, but is actually the place where torture goes on. Men in love. Men in love. Uh-huh. Just picture Careless Whisper playing in the background. <laughs> hey there, Winston. I'm O'Brien. I'm the chief of the Ministry of Love, and I'm going to make you... Feel the pain. So you gotta wonder, like, how'd Winston miss that? That the dude that he was having a crush on at work is the chief of the Ministry of Love? And more importantly, why is O'Brien wandering around seducing randos into treason? I got the stupid fucking questions at. To catch him. I guess? So Winston goes to Torture Town for a while, and they hurt him physically. Uh, no, Daddy. <laughs> Stop. (laughs) Two plus two equals whatever you want it to, Daddy. (laughs) Oh, no. Not the clamps. (laughs) Anyway. There's no way that's going to fit in there. Ooh. It did. Are you done? Rawr. Gross. All right. um, So they physically hurt him and they play mind games with him, too, saying that the goal is not to kill him, but to break him. I will break you. Yeah, that was what I thought you would say. After lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of torture, Winston at least still hasn't betrayed Julia. 
So this torture thing continues on and off for a while until Winston is just like, the hell with this. I'm just gonna die hating the party and you can't stop me. And O'Brien's like, oh, can't I? And he threatens Winston with his greatest fear. A spanking on his bottom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> O'Brien telling him he has a tiny penis. Oh. A splinter in his dick. Ah. Jesus. No. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's fucking rats. They, they bring him into a room, and O'Brien threatens Winston with a cage full of rats, being like, they go chew your face off, son. So Winston immediately loses all of that bravado, spunk, and or moxie, folds like a fucking house of cards, and yells, do it to Julia! Like a punk. So O'Brien is satisfied that he's made Winston squeal like a pig, and this begs the question, why not just skip all the torture and go straight to the face-eating rats? Like, I feel like that would have saved a lot of time. They got all the time in the world. They want to enjoy it. You know, you lead up to it. You don't go 100%. You know, you massage your way. You get them in the mood. You get in the mood. You enjoy it. They enjoy it. So it, and was, then, it, was, it was like foreplay. Yeah. You never go straight to the face-eating rats. So, fast forward to Winston being released from the ministry as a model citizen. He even runs into Julia again, and they're both pretty fucked up from the torture, and they also no longer have the desire to bump uglies. Winston now really and truly loves Big Brother, but he also wants to shoot himself in the head. The end. And so that's 1984, minus the majority of the philosophy, because I have the attention span of a gerbil. So like I said before, um, however you personally feel about it, 1984 has impacted so many things of, like, people of songs people have made, and movies and TV shows and language, like our actual lexicon, and, um... What's interesting, though, is it's only been adapted into a movie twice, once in 1956 and once in, appropriately enough, 1984, starring uh, the recently departed John Hurt. Great um, marketing. <laughs> uh, actually, the movie for 1984. To, if you want to talk about marketing, we can talk about the most iconic uh, 1984 thing. We're talking about... The Apple ad. Now, if you are not familiar with the famous 1984 Apple ad, pause this, go on to YouTube, and watch that shit. It's like a minute long. Just just do it right now. We'll be here when you get back, I promise. Unless you're, like, in a car, driving a car now or, like, flying a plane or something. Then, you know, I guess you can just kind of deal with it and, and wait. It aired during the Super Bowl. It, which, it did. Which might have been on CBS. <laughs> America's Most Watched Network. Please stop. So, Megan. Yeah, RJ? What's the ad about? All right. So, you've got these rows of people all, like, sitting. And they're all bald for some reason. And they're all just wearing, like, gray jumpsuits. This lets you know that it is the dark and terrible future. And they're listening to a giant screen of, of a dude, of Big Brother, espousing terrible, dystopic Big Brother things. While this is happening, 
you see a figure running through the crowd. It's a big, muscly, busty, blonde woman. And she's running through the crowd. And she's carrying, like, a, a big, freaking... It's not like a hammer, it's like a mallet. Like a, like a, like a Thor-style hammer. And based on the physics, I guess in 1984, they hadn't perfected the sports bra yet. Gross. So, anyway, this giant face screen guy is yelling and the bald people are sitting and police in riot gear are chasing down this, like, super buff Hooters runner woman and then she fucking hurls the the hammer into the screen and destroys it and it's like and this is just like this every all the bald people are freaking out and then text crawls across the screen and says on january 24th apple will release the macintosh computer and you'll see why 1984 won't be like in quotes 1984 what I presume they mean is that you won't have a bitch diary anymore. You'll be able to write all your dirty little thoughts on a Macintosh. Because when I think about Apple computers, I think about beefy blonde ladies bashing in TV screens. And then, you know, we could also talk about the irony of, you know, destroy conformity by Apple computers and now, you know... Everybody has an iPhone. Hey, irony, nerd. I don't know about you guys. I still got my Nokia flip phone. Yeah, I got my my <laughs> I got my Zoom. I don't know about you. I don't do what the man tells me to do. So we've talked about uh, how 1984 is you know has has made so many huge ripples on today's society, but how were people about it when it came out? Well, for the most part, it was well-received. Most people said they'd never read anything like it before or it just really affected them. They really agreed with it. Um, it was actually kind of hard to find negative reviews, but I did find one. One negative review. C.S. Lewis. <laughs> okay. Uh, writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're not immediately familiar with the name. His problem with 1984 in... I'm quoting him here, that it lacked credibility. Oh? Yeah, just not believable. So if Winston had, like, gone into a, a magical wardrobe to escape Big Brother, would that have been more credible? It might have been. He also said, I quote, 1984 is odious Ooh. rather than tragic. C.S. Lewis, not a fan. C.S. Lewis wasn't a fan of a lot of stuff. Like, he was, like, really, really good friends with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and he shit-talked Lord of the Rings, like, literally all the time. So I think he was just also kind of a salty dude. Aldous Huxley also had opinions on the book. He wrote Brave New World, which came out 17 years before 1984. In Brave New World, pretty similar 1984, but the way that the government controls the people is different so 1984 it is basically through threats or direct action yes where... harsh, harsh things bad times tortures etc aldous huxley has a cuddlier gentler dystopic future right that it's 
through distraction, through drugs, through enjoyment, sex, anything like that. And so Huxley wrote Orwell afterwards and said, you know, it's much easier to win people over through fun things rather than beat them down you know, or use violence against them. That it's better to use a softer touch. And so think about that. Really, after, what, now it's almost 70 years later, they were both kind of right? Yeah, Huxley kind of nailed America, what with our reality TVs and our Twitters and our 24-hour news cycles and our inability to be focused on one atrocity for any given amount of time. And Orwell's vision is more prevalent probably in countries with dictators ex-communist countries or countries in the Middle East. So, you know, everybody wins, except that everybody loses, and it's terrible. Anyway, so the title 1984 was not the original working title. Orwell kicked around... They never seemed to be. (laughs) He kicked around a few different ideas. Originally, he was going to call it The Last Man in Europe, but his publisher said... No, you need to make this something more marketable. Well, and and also just like, no, there's clearly lots of other dudes there. And so then he went through this thing of he was going to call it 1944, then 1946, then 1948. And then he landed (laughs) on... Just keep pushing back that deadline. 1984. So the reason why... (laughs) Surely I'll have the book done by then. Well, he, he was writing it in 1947, so the reason he was originally going to name it 1944 is in 1944, the World War II hasn't ended yet, but in 1944, there was the Tehran Conference where the U.S., Russia, and Britain got together in Iran talking about how they were going to split up post-war Germany. Russia took the East, America and Britain took the western part of Berlin, and Germany, and then there was the split. And at that point, Orwell kind of saw how things were going to go. He was really against America and the Brits teaming up with Stalin because he felt after World War II, there was going to be another war. Basically, he predicted the Cold War, which started immediately after World War II. And so in his mind, the reason he was going to call it 1944 is this is where that idea of like zone of influence began, where he thought the world was going to just be split up with America taking part, Britain taking part, and Russia taking part in the post-war. But he didn't like that title. He did 1946 That's because... an interesting concept, though. 1946 was after World War II. And then by the time he got to 1948, he decided, well, this is set in the future. So he just flipped the last two numbers and made it 1984, figuring it was enough in advance. I'll be dead by then. Whatever. Yeah, well, he died shortly thereafter. He was really sick when he was writing 1984. Um, he was just having a litany of health issues as someone probably would when they die before they turn 50. What did he die of? I don't even know if they said what he died from. They really don't even, just the, the writer's disease? He died of being aloof. <laughs> he died of being homophobic. Yeah. <laughs> yep. He got that homophobe's disease. The doctor said something. He said, take those Nancy little medical degrees of yours and shove it. So, I mean, I guess we kind of did our final thoughts at the beginning this time. So is there is there anything, RJ, that you kind of want to leave us on here in terms of how you feel about 1984? I like it. Read it. I like Animal Farm. Read it. 
see what you like better. It's like a taste test. I still don't like 1984. It's just about philosophy and boning. And, and not even the interesting kind of boning. Just the sort of sad, desperate, dystopic boning. They might enjoy those chapters. You know, with the spanking and flogging and whatever else happens. Don't lie to people. It's hot. Don't, don't make them think there's something if, in there that's not there. If you're into Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh my god, yeah. Read 1984. It's, it's like the same book. Fifty Shades dystopic this is actually not even the first 50 shades of gray reference we've made in our podcast about literature that about wraps things up for oh no lit class oh daddy please stop saying words please remember to do you want a rat in your face (laughs) if not if not you ought to uh Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave uh, ratings and comments and all those fun things. Check out our Facebook. You can also listen to us at onolitclass.com. Follow us on Tumblr. Follow us on Twitter at onolitclass. Uh, I think that's that's the whole gamut. The next episode should be up on April 13th. So uh, this has been Ono Lit Class. I'm Megan. I'm Harlan Oscara. Block beauty. <laughs> we we love you. Bye. And I'm gonna look to see just how much I can play of something before it's a copyright infringement.